book of Jude, that little book of 25 verses or letter, epistle of Jude, next to the last book of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. I'm going to read just the first three verses and first of Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege of ours to be assembled together. Thank you for uh, the privilege we have to sing praises under thy glorious name. And I pray, Father, that you would just uh, quiet our hearts before you. Now as we look into thy word. I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts through it, encourage us, strengthen us, challenge and, con and convict where conviction is needed, and just glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this, Selected to be Saints. Uh, just a little bit of an introduction here to the book, or this letter, epistle. Uh, it's, of course, written by uh, Jude, the brother of James. He calls himself the brother of James. Uh, most believe that this is uh, uh, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, who had been uh, son to Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. But anyway... As we think about uh, this epistle, I want to notice several things about it. You know, the first thing I want to mention, you know, this, this uh, he talks about the faith once delivered unto the saints. Um, of course, that's talking about preserved truth. And as, we, as you think about that, uh, in our society and in the world today, everybody talks about that says that truth is relative. In other words, it's subjective. Uh, subjective means existing in the mind, belonging to the thinking, uh, subject rather than to object of thought. So it's, it's characteristic of an individual. So, it, so truth is different for, is how you interpret it. That's what the world thinks. It's subjective. But truth is not subjective, truth is objective. The Bible is objective. It's not influenced by your feelings by your interpretations, by your prejudices. It's based on facts. It's unbiased. You, truth don't care about your feelings. They don't care. Truth doesn't care if your feelings are hurt. Truth is just fact. And, uh, and of course, we know, as Bible believers, that the word of God is truth. Thy word is truth, John 7, 17. But I want us to think about it tonight, selected to be saints. Notice here, first of all, I noticed several things. Uh, he, uh, he says that he's a servant. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brothers of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So, so he's a servant. He's been, and he's uh, sanctified and he's been selected. Now, if you think about a servant, of course, you know, all, almost all the Bible writers referred to themselves as servants. Uh, Paul said, you know, he was the prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians 4, 1. Philippians 4, 1 and 1, he, he says that he, Paul and Timothy are servants of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 that 
that, that the greatest would be servant of all. And he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. You know, really what that says is that if we realize that we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge or recognize our proper place in relationship to him. Uh, you know, Jude, Jude could have said, well, I'm the brother of the Lord. But he didn't say that. He said, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's to acknowledge and recognize uh, our proper place in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ and his person. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4, 14 through 16, speaking about the, the Lord Jesus, Paul writing to Timothy says, That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Think about that phrase, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. You remember Moses asked the Lord, can I see you? And the Lord said, you hide yourself in the cleft of the rock, and I'll let my shadow pass by. So that you can just get a little glimpse of my hinder parts. Because no man, you know, Zechariah says, no man can see the Lord and not die and live. So he says, and that's what it's referring to, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light. He is God. God radiates with light. There is no darkness in him. Of course, the disciples got a little glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was transfigured and became white as snow and it was actually blinding to them. So this is speaking about the Lord Jesus here. Which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. You know, when Jesus was man when God manifested himself in the flesh, he veiled or... Uh, uh, covered his glory so that it wasn't seen or men would have died in his presence he laid aside his name a man and dwelt among us but uh, in his time he's going to show who is the only potentate to call the pope a potentate is blasphemous only Jesus Christ is a potentate so when Jude refers to himself as a servant, he's just acknowledging his proper place and his proper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also says that he's writing to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ in call. Now, the word sanctify is, is a, a, a big $50 word. It has a simple definition. It means set apart. Set apart for special usage. And... And we, as God's people, have been set apart for use. God desires to use us. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, the Bible says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. So, 
God says, you know, that there are vessels, some are more sanctified than others, but God desires that all of us be sanctified, that is, set apart and meet, or meet, word meet means fit or usable for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. So, so we have been, by receiving Christ as the Lord and Savior, we've been set apart. Well, we have what we call, there's three parts of sanctification. There is positional practical, and perfect. Now, positional means we're set apart from the penalty of sin. We're no longer under the penalty of sin. We've been set apart from that. You know, Jesus said in John 5, 24, that we have passed from death unto life. Set apart from, our, from the penalty of our sin. Uh, he will remember our iniquities no more, Hebrews 8 tells us two times. Hebrews 8, 12 and Hebrews 10, 17. I believe it is, tells us that he remembers our iniquities no more. Uh, Hebrews 10, 14 says, He has sanctified forever them that uh, call upon his name. So, so we've been sanctified forever. So that's our positional sanctification. The practical is being delivered from the power or the control of sin. Uh, go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And of course, this is a daily thing. A daily experience that we need to be delivered from the, not only, you know, we are, if, if we know Christ our Lord and Savior, we are delivered or set apart from the penalty of sin. It has no power over us or, or no dominion over us. Death has no more dominion over us. But we can be delivered also from the dominion of sin in our lives. And that's the practical part. You're talking about everyday life. Romans 6 uh, Let's start in verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and, that your, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion or control over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. So God has made it possible for us to be delivered from the power of sin. We don't have to live under the control of sin anymore. Because we have the Word of God and we have the Spirit of God that dwells within us. Um, you know, this, this is all, of course, by the grace of God. In in uh, first go to First Corinthians fifteen verse ten. First Corinthians, all these things are ours by God's grace. First Corinthians fifteen verse ten, where Paul said, and he's writing to the church at Corinth, says, "But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain." But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul, of all the disciples, or all the apostles, was the most wicked before he got saved. You, know, you might think Judas was. But Judas appeared to be a good fellow. You know, he was one of the good boys. On the outside. Paul was not. 
Paul consented to the murder and death of Stephen. He arrested Christians and put them in jail. You know, he was a blasphemer. But God so worked in his life by the grace of God, delivering him not only from the penalty of sin, but overcoming the and, and changing the way he lived. You know, I, I would think it'd be difficult to overcome the reality that you had part in killing somebody one time. That'd be hard to live with. You know, I've often said, you know, if I have to defend myself, I will shoot somebody. But I hope I never have to do it. You know, and, and, and the fact that he, out of his ignorance, you know, blasphemed God and put Christians to death who, who, who weren't trying to harm him in any way, were only trying to help him, you had to live with that would be, I think, difficult. But Paul overcame all those things. And he labored more abundantly than all the other disciples, all the other apostles. He says, by the grace of God. The grace of God. You know, Thayer's, Thayer's lexicon describes grace this way. Merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. So, you know, we need the grace of God to so work in our life that we yield ourselves as instruments of righteousness unto God and not have sin dominion over us. Uh, you know, Paul talks about this, this kind of grace in, in many places of his, of his letters that he, epistles that he wrote. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he talks to, about the Macedonian churches, and he says, Moreover, brethren, would you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in great trial affliction and the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under riches of their liberality. Verse 6, Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. So the idea of God exerting his holy influence. Well, how does God do that? He does it by you and I yielding to him. That's how he does it. And the more we yield to him, the more grace, the more influence that God has in our life. In Galatians chapter 1, verses uh, 15 and 16, again he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. So Paul just yielded himself. Remember what Paul said on the road to Damascus when, the, when he was struck down, and he, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? He, and, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And, and, and he said, what shalt thou have me to do? You know, he, he, as it were, wrote his life out as a blank check and said, Lord, fill it in. It's yielded to you. You see, again, we have to yield ourselves to allow His grace to work. It's by submitting, by yielding, by relying on Him, 
by seeking Him. You know, you will get out of your Christianity what you put into it. You know, the old saying is, what makes extraordinary? It's just the extra you put into it. I remember years ago when I was still farming, and uh, we were working with another fellow, he owned the farm, and, and we milked cows there and rented a house and barn and worked for him, and, and I was at the neighbor's one day. And, you know, one of the things that we did, and this farmer did, we worked for, he would soil test things to see what the soil called for to have maximum production, and he would fertilize. Even his pasture fields he fertilized. Well, this there's a lady who ran a kind of a makeshift of farm right neighbors to us, and and uh, and she she didn't fertilize. So anyway, I was down there one day, and she said, uh, "Why does your pasture field so much greener than mine, and the grass is bigger?" I said, "Well, I think it's because Gary put fertilizer on it." Yeah, I have fertilized my. Um, yard a couple times and for some reason my grass gets bigger than my neighbors and thicker you know why because i put something into it you see if you if minimum if to you minimum is is required that's what you'll get minimum if you put the maximum into it god will work maximum in your life if you want god to really work in your life then you need to yield your life to him. Give him the maximum, and you'll get the maximum out of it. So God has made it possible for us to be delivered from the very power of sin. We do not need, or it's not required that we yield to sin, but we can be delivered from it. So that's practical sanctification. And of course, there is perfect, what we call perfect. One day, we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. When we go to be with the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, um, Behold, I show you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality, so when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. Then shall we brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So one day we're going to put off corruption completely. And be delivered from the very presence of sin. You know, the Bible tells us in Revelation 21-27 that... that Nothing that defileth will enter there. Nothing. Can you imagine being in a place where nothing gets defiled? I mean, from our bodies, they, you know, we, def- we defile them by sin. They grow old, they age. Our houses, a house is a constant upkeep. It's always decaying. That city won't be. <laughs> Streets of gold, no drywall, no lumber. Uh, you know, none of that stuff. Praise the Lord. No drywall. Anyway, 
Uh, no, we'll be one day delivered from the very presence and bondage of power of sin. And we look forward to that day. So, so we are servants, sanctified. We've also been selected. And I changed the word there. But, and, and the word is sanctified in Jesus Christ and called. Called. The word called means appointed. That's the idea of appointed. Uh, we've been uh, uh, sanctified and appointed by Jesus Christ. Uh, we're, we're called by God. Uh, and we're, some of the things we're called to be. First of all, we're called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1 2, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. You know, we always say the worst church in the New Testament is what? Corinth. You know, in fact, Paul called them carnal in chapter 3. But he said that they were called to be saints. Now, I think. I, I really haven't done this, but I can't recollect where it says when he's writing to the churches or to Christians that he ever calls them sinners. They're called saints. The word saint means holy one. That's what it means. So we're called to be saints. Uh, we are called to be holy. First Peter 1 Peter 1.15 uh, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Uh, First Corinthians or First Peter one sixteen tells us we're called to walk worthy. This has to do with practical everyday living. Paul said in Ephesians four one that we're to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith he were called. Uh, you know, whatever whatever work we find ourselves in, we're to do it to the glory of God. So we're to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. Uh, we're called to do good works. Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Titus chapter 2 speaks to every age group, you might say, and tells us over and over again, the book of Titus does over and over again, that we ought to be uh, uh, doing good works. Titus 2 verse 7 says, In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. And this is speaking to young men. In doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That's a good work, sound speech. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to save you. You go, it shouldn't be that the world has something bad to say about us. They may criticize and they may mock, they may make fun, but they shouldn't have something they can point to and say, you know what? You got a flaw there. Or there's sin in your life. So I have no evil thing to save you. Uh, verse 9, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. Um... Verse uh, 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So we've been called to do good works. Matthew five sixteen. let your light so shine before men that may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
So our works should show that we are a child of God. Even as a servant. Servants be obedient unto your masters. You know, uh, so, so our life, that's, that's practical living. Our lives should show that we belong to the Lord. We, we are different than the world. We're not here to please myself. You know, I was talking to a fellow here not too long ago, and I was talking about a certain thing, and I thought to myself, well, you know, the difference between you and me is I have, we have a different authority. That's what makes a difference. It isn't that I'm such a good guy, even though I am, that I'm such a good guy. No, I have a different authority. I have a different authority. Uh, his authority is him. That's his problem. It's him. So no, we have a different authority. And, and it's to guide our life. We're called, we're called to do his purpose. You know, we like to quote Ephesians 2, or Ephesians 8, 28-29. Which says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of a son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God has called us to be conformed to the image of a son. What did his son do? What was his motto? I do always those things that please the Father. Always. And so we've been selected. By God, we've been appointed to do uh, his service and to do good works and all these things. And then, I want you to notice also, uh, he says, mercy unto you, verse 2, and peace and love be multiplied. You know, this is a common greeting of a, of a New Testament writer. The mercy, of course, refers to an outward manifestation of pity. Uh, tenderness of heart, which disposes a person to look over injuries or treat a person better than they deserve. You know, our God's a merciful God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. If Adam and Eve would have gotten what they deserved, he'd have got rid of them right then to start over. You know, Noah didn't go into the ark or didn't find uh, favor with God because he was such a great guy. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He believed in the Lord. You know, God doesn't give us what we deserve. Now, he actually pities us. Look, Psalm 103, verses, uh, eight through four, or verses 8 through 13 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. That word plenteous has the idea of abounding or overabundance. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them, that fear him. So, God is merciful to us. 
And he gives to us, not only extends mercy, but peace. Peace. And love be multiplied. Peace, of course, peace is a resulting experience in the heart. It comes from a right relationship with the Lord. The Bible tells us there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The wicked are like a troubled sea that it cannot rest. Do you ever wonder why so many are on prescription drugs? Not at peace. Why do, why do people try to change who they are? I mean, they'll dye their hair purple or orange or mutilate their bodies in some way, maybe through a gender change. They're not at peace with who they are. They're not at peace with the way God made them. It's really a rebellion against God. That's what it is. And they're not at peace. They don't have peace with God. You know, Roman, the, the, there's two thoughts here as we think about peace. We, ha- we can have peace with God, or and we can have the peace of God. You can't have the peace of God if you don't have peace with God. Now, the peace with God comes through knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we've been changed from an enemy of God to the friend of God. We're now on the same side. We're at peace with him. We're no longer his enemy. We're in his family. So we're at peace. Now, the peace of God is the result of us walking in obedience to the Lord. You know, Philippians 4, verse 7. Philippians 4 and verse 7 says, oh, let's, re- let's read verse 6. Be careful for nothing. That means to be anxious or the idea of being worrying about. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Uh, Colossians 3.15 says, let the, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now the word rule there means to umpire. <laughs> let, let the peace of God be your umpire. Let it rule. Let it decide, direct, determine the peace of God. You know, Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. So this peace of God comes with a right relationship of trust and resting in God and where you are in your life with him. If you're... If you're if you don't like what God's doing in your life, there's going to be unrest there. Or if you're disobeying Him, there's going to be unrest and lack of peace. You know, most of the time there's peace in our house. 
But every once in a while, somebody gets out of sorts with somebody else, and then there's war. <laughs> Unrest, you know? <laughs> and of course, James tells us, where's war come from? Of your own lust. You war and fight, and you have not, because you ask not. So, you know, but, but God wants us to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. And so we need to let God direct our life. And that puts, that's, of course, goes along with that is putting your trusting in him, just resting upon his promises, allowing him to lead you and direct you in your life. Uh, so we don't have the mercy and peace. And, of course, and I'm going to conclude with this. Jude's intention was to write of the common salvation. Notice in verse 3 it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So his intention was to write of the common salvation, but it was needful, he says, for him to write and exhort that we should earnestly contend. Now, my question is this. If you're going to have peace of God in your life, your plans have to be in submission to him. Jude's purpose wasn't to write what he wrote. That wasn't his plan. But God directed. He let God umpire. He let God call shots, if you will. He let God make the calls. Now, it doesn't say that he argued, but that wasn't his intention right away. You know, I've been in ball games where it wasn't my intention to strike out either, but the umpire had other thoughts. So the question is, are my plans or purposes for my life in submission to him? Are we allowing him to direct? You know, you know he, has, he has called us, you know, he has sanctified us, and he has called us to the service, and we ought to allow him to direct, umpire the, our life. You know, was it God's plan? I want you to think about this. Was it God's plan for David to be in Jerusalem idle when Joab and his men were fighting against the children of Ammon? You know, David was out of the way, off duty, in the way of temptation. Yeah, the Bible says there very clearly in, in, in 2 Samuel 11, 1, that when the time of the kings go forth to battle, David tarried at Jerusalem. He tarried. Oh, is he just kind of looping around? He was getting comfortable and at ease at being king and kind of letting the responsibilities of leadership kind of Joab take care of it. In fact, Joab had to actually, later on, send for David and say, come down, because if I conquer the city, they're going to put the crown on my head. While he's messing around with Bathsheba. 
No. See, it wasn't God's plan for David to be in Jerusalem. That wasn't where he was supposed to be. You know, we can get in trouble if we're not where God wants us to be. If we're in a place where he doesn't want us. In a place that he hasn't directed. He hasn't umpired that we go that way. You know, most commentators don't agree with me, but I think the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem and the Lord said he wasn't supposed to go. Because the Bible says that the Spirit, look at, look at uh, Acts chapter 20. You know, Paul was a godly man, and I, you know, and I hate, I don't, I don't, you know, I say this carefully with all respects to, to the great Apostle Paul. But in, in Acts chapter 20, Verse uh, 16 says, For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he had hasted. That's a bad word right there, hasted. He that believeth, you know, Isaiah says, He that believeth shall not make haste. Hasted if it were possible for him to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. Verse 22. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, say that the Holy Ghost witness in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Look at chapter 4, verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 4, I'm sorry. It says, And find disciples who tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the spirit. Now if you notice, in verse 22 that we read, the word spirit is not capitalized. He had determined in his own spirit to be in Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. But the spirit of God says, verse 4, chapter 21, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. I don't know how you can, I don't, you know, I don't know how you can interpret that any other way. But you know, Paul did say, that he would wish he were cursed for his kinsmen, his brethren in the flesh. He was so burdened for his own kin, the Jews, that he was willing to go to Jerusalem and die if need be, be martyred. So he was determined to go. And of course, in, in, chap, in chapter 21, verse 10, it says, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. When he was coming to us, come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. So again, the question I asked is, Are my plans in complete submission to him is my life what I have what my intentions and my purpose in life is it in accordance is it being directed by my Lord or am I seeking what I desire and not seeking what he wants and you know what is the will of God for my life. The will of God for my life is to obey him where I am right now. 
You know, when, when young people are young, they can't wait till they get older. What did we say on the way over tonight? That's a that's overrated. <laughs> Adult life isn't as all grand as it that appears when you're 15. <laughs> it's overrated. I would agree with that. Ah, uh, it's overrated. But you know, we but when we're 15, we want to know what God's will is for my life. We aren't ready yet. Well, you know, does God want me to be a missionary? Does God want me to be uh, to work for the city of Raleigh? Does God want me to be, you know, what, whatever? And, and we're not there yet. God's will is for you to learn and grow, be obedient to your parents, learn how to figure math and understand science and, you know, and be able to interpret the scriptures, understand language well enough to be able to, to interpret the scriptures. That's God's will for your life is to be obedient where you are to the authorities you're under right now. So, you know, God has called us. He selected us to be saints, to live, to glorify and honor him. You know, the question is, are we in submission to him? Are we glorifying him? Are we seeking his will? Are we allowing him to work, being yielded to him in our daily life?